Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Robert George, the director of the James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions here at Princeton University. And it's a great pleasure uh, to have all of you here with us uh, today on this beautiful day. Uh, sorry to make this indoors. If possible, we'd make it an outdoors lecture on a day like today. Uh, but it's great to, uh, to have you here. Let me uh, observe that this afternoon's lecture is part of the John M. Olin Lecture Series on the Moral Foundations of American Democracy uh, in the James Madison Program. Uh, it is an understatement uh, to say that uh, John DiUlio has had an impressive professional academic career. Uh, I remember when he came to Princeton, I was already uh, an infant member of the faculty, having been here one whole year myself. Uh, within two years, uh, or maybe it was two and a half, uh, Professor DiUlio skipped over the rest of us, uh, poor little assistant professors, uh, and was given tenure in record time. Uh, he was then promoted to full professor, again in record time, uh, made director of the domestic uh, policy program uh, in the Woodrow Wilson School, uh, and on and on. Alas, a couple of years ago, uh, he decided to give it up uh, here at Princeton, uh, for the greener pastures of the University of Pennsylvania, as he wrongly perceived them, uh, where he became the first Frederick Fox leadership professor of politics, religion, and civil, and civil society, and professor of political science uh, there at his beloved alma mater, uh, the University of uh, Pennsylvania. We try to console ourselves with the thought that it was just too much for John uh, to stay away from his alma mater. Uh, it wasn't about us. Uh, John. Uh, uh, went from the University of Pennsylvania as an undergraduate to Harvard, uh, where he distinguished himself uh, in the doctoral program, earned his PhD, and uh, became the heir and successor uh, in every important intellectual and professional respect to the great James uh, Q. Wilson, uh, who helped to supervise John's work there. He has since uh, gotten the distinction of becoming co-author of Wilson's very important, uh, widely used and influential casebook uh, on American government. Uh, of course, more recently, uh, John has been in the news a bit when he was directed to be the uh, inaugural director uh, of the White House Office on Faith-Based uh, and Community Programs, John having been in the forefront uh, of the movement uh, to create such an office uh, and to engage the power of faith and faith-based institutions uh, in providing social services uh, to the poor and the most marginalized members of our society. John has written numerous books won numerous awards. Uh, I could go on and on, but then he wouldn't have any time to get his uh, message out. But as impressive as all that resume material is, uh, it doesn't tell the real story of John DiUlio, uh, my friend and brother. Uh, John DiUlio is an activist in the very best sense of the word, uh, and one uh, who is driven uh, in his pursuits in public life. Uh, by uh, what uh, the Reverend Martin Luther King called his conception of the brotherhood of man uh, under the fatherhood of God. It's a deep faith that moves John's activities, uh, not only in the political sphere, but, and you would have no reason to know about this, in the personal uh, sphere, hands-on work, teaching at the Yezu School uh, in Philadelphia, reaching out uh, uh, to poor children, uh, setting an example for them, working with them, one by one, uh, just a terrific uh, witness uh, to his faith 
uh, and to that uh, brotherly love of which Dr. King spoke. And in his scholarship, he is driven by a passion for the truth. John made his early career by questioning, puncturing the orthodoxies that dominated the fields uh, that he occupied himself with, particularly in the areas of criminology and penology. It didn't make him a lot of friends, uh, but it earned him a lot uh, of respect uh, and led to the professional uh, laurels of which I've spoken. But that drive was not a drive for professional laurels. Anybody who knows John as I do uh, knows that that's not what moved him. Uh, rather, in his scholarship, again, it's a passion, and this time it's a passion for the truth, and one that I know is uh, motivated, uh, conceived precisely uh, as the truth, uh, embodied in him who told us that he was the way, the truth, and the life. So it is with the greatest pleasure that I welcome back to Princeton University my very dear friend, my brother, John DiUlio. Well, that's it. He may come back to Princeton. He makes me cry, and then the uh, whole thing's over. Uh, Robbie, what can I say? It's uh, your words uh, really do humble me. It's it's. Uh, I wish my mother was here to hear that. Uh, uh, not that not that she would believe it, but um, thank you, Robbie, and uh, thank you, and thank the members, the advisory board of the James Madison program, John and Mullen program. Thank you for. Having me back, I spent 13 uh, wonderful years where uh, colleague after colleague, person after person, kept giving me things better than I deserved. Uh, so I think of this as Princeton Mercy School. Um, I want to uh, just begin by making a few personal remarks and acknowledgments uh, beyond those I've already made. First is uh, Professor George is quite right. We, uh, we were newly minted assistant professors together. And one of the uh, tasks you get to do when you're assistant professor is anything that uh, you're told to do, uh, pretty much out of Nassau Hall. And one of the things we were told was to be the joint team for reviewing candidates for the Truman Scholarship. And uh, I had done that when I was at Harvard. I, my wife, Rosalie, and I were uh, head resident tutors at Harvard. And so I had done that Truman Scholarship uh, vetting process uh, myself, and I was considered a pretty tough hombre. Uh, but then these, here comes these poor kids, and it's Julio and George. Uh, and <laughs> and uh, I understand that the university here is uh, Princeton still paying out uh, for legal fees uh, for the uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, that were, and those were the winners uh, that uh, uh, got it. So it was it was quite uh, quite an experience. Um, I also must say I I used to like to joke. Um, some of you have heard this joke. My jokes are all stale now. They've been exposed in public, so I'm sorry. Uh, the White House does not afford joke writers. Uh, for the pre president gets joke writers, but some say he doesn't need them. Um, uh, but um, uh, I, I didn't say that, members of the press. I, um, but I just like to joke that after 
however many years it was as a professor across Harvard and or graduate student in Harvard teaching here at Princeton and so on that I had come to learn the definition of an Ivy League professor which was as someone who could speak for five minutes or two hours on any subject without any essential change in content. Uh, now, uh, last 12 weeks in government, I have learned the definition of a government official, and that is someone who can speak for five minutes or two hours on any subject and say nothing at all. So, uh, well, uh, I'm going to try to not be although you will be uh, duly bored in due course. Uh, I'm going to try to not be that Ivy League professor. I'm going to try to limit my remarks because uh, I really am far more interested in what you may have to say about the topic at hand, uh, which was assigned to me before uh, this job was uh, foisted uh, upon me, uh, the question of compassionate conservatism, what it is, what it might mean, how to think about it, the relationship between government and civil society. Before I do that, however, I just want to make one last personal acknowledgement. Uh, I was, uh, I'll tell you the, the sweetest thing of today, I don't know, between Robbie's introduction and the conversation we're about to have, uh, wonderful, but seeing the members of my freshman seminar and have them uh, turn out um, after how badly I beat them uh, up and, uh, and, and seeing them all grown up, uh, uh, I think some of them are imposters, actually. They've been switched. I, I don't believe them. But where are they? Would you just stand up? And where are my, where are my freshmen 104 through? Uh, thank you. Uh, uh, these are actually all paid actors from Minnesota. Um, of course, that fellow over there, uh, he's actually coming to Penn next year in graduate school, and he's going to be in the building next to mine. So there are gluttons for punishment uh, here at Princeton. Uh, Thank you guys for coming. It's, uh, it more than warms the heart to see you. Well, let me begin. Uh, see, I personalize things a lot. That's been part of my problem my whole career. But um, let me begin with uh, some personal reflections. You, some of you may have heard these. I've given fragments of them before in public and in private and in some things published about compassionate conservatism. I'm going to tell you who my favorite uh, compassionate conservative is. My favorite compassionate conservative is Conchetta Spagna. Um, Conchetta Spagna, who was my maternal grandmother, never ran for office. Um, Italian immigrant, died in 1986. And when she died, the family reluctantly sold the uh, row house that she had occupied in South Philadelphia. Those of you who have uh, seen the Rocky movies, and I know it's not fashionable always in these settings to admit that you've seen the Rocky movies, but I'm sure some of you have heard about it. And uh, there's that church across the street from my grandmother's house, St. Thomas Aquinas, cathedral-like church where Rocky gets married and so forth. And so that's actually literally the church. That's where they filmed it. And that's the neighborhood where she lived, and that was the church where uh, for 68 years she raised seven children and worshipped. And located in uh, what had uh, long since become, by the time she was in her 60s, 70s, and 80s, a poor, predominantly minority neighborhood, when, when we sold the house, uh, it fetched, I think, about $15,000, part of which was used, actually, to pay off the federal lien that was incurred when the family went on relief, as they called it, uh, during the Great Depression. Well. Going on the New Deal dole was no disgracia, uh, but it was a last resort. Make, make no mistake, it was a last resort. Both my grandmother and my grandfather worked in sweatshops, tailor shops, 
as did my uh, school-age uh, mother and her older siblings. But when, one by one, they lost their jobs, the family occasionally, literally, went hungry. Their neighbors were in the same boat. They prayed together. They shared meals and they shared money. When they got sick, community hospitals and the corner drugstore helped. Uh, my mother still regales me with tales of how the, drug, the druggist was kind of like the doctor of the neighborhood. Um, sometimes he cured you, sometimes he killed you, but uh, he, he showed up. But their basic health care needs, you know, went largely unmet. The cathedral-like Catholic church across the street helped, but there, too, uh, there were families that needed help even more than my grandmother's uh, did. And help from City Hall was really scarce, and the state capital of Harrisburg uh, might as well have been uh, in Germany or something for all that it had to do with their condition. So my family accepted help from the faceless fellow citizens who my grandmother always affectionately called the Americans, uh, by which I always surmised she meant uh, something like all decent non-Italians who lived farther away from us than South Jersey. <laughs> and probably would have encompassed Princeton, I'm not sure. I'd have to. She was so grateful for their help that for decades after, she went to church every day. I remember her pulling me along across that street. Every day this woman went to church, and she lit three candles. She lit two for the son she had lost uh, during World War II, and one for Mr. Roosevelt. Mr. Roosevelt. Mr. Roosevelt. There was a, I don't know, like a cut out of a newspaper in a cheap frame, you know, up on the, with all the dead, deceased relatives and statues of various saints, some of which, depending on the state of play, were upside down, depending whether they delivered or not. Uh, they were... I'm also a Catholic theologian, if anyone would like to. For, uh, uh, but there was Mr. Roosevelt, revered figure, who got the Americans uh, to help. Now, paleoconservatives still deride, some of them, there aren't many left, but paleoconservatives still deride Mr. Roosevelt's help as creeping socialism. But most conservatives, of most stripes, have made peace with families like mine by favoring limited federal programs that, consistent with what I'm going to talk about a bit more in due course as the Catholic social teaching known as subsidiarity, uh, would help the needy, but without, however, denying personal responsibility, without supplanting community institutions, uh, without turning local governments into mere appendages of the national government. A welfare state modeled on subsidiarity, and again, I will say more about subsidiarity in due course, but a welfare state modeled on subsidiarity uh, might have worked, but one never actually materialized. Instead, with the great society of Lyndon Johnson, the country's entire anti-poverty regime became progressively Washington-centric. After 1965, the national government stepped in with food, with money, with medicine, with housing, with college loans, you name it. But without much regard for whether individuals and families and churches or local governments should help first or could help best. 
The appetite for federal handouts really grew with the eating, and everybody ate. I mean, as we would say in Italian, tutta mangi, everybody ate from this, this trough. Middle-class entitlements multiplied even faster than so-called lower-class entitlements. My grandmother was about as likely to demand welfare rights as she was to eat canned macaroni. But among her neighbors in later years, such demands became a social norm, just as among her own middle-class progeny, having the national government assume primary responsibility for old folks' income and health care needs became a social norm. We often think about this development solely in relation to the poor, the growth of the welfare and entitlement state. But it was, alas, mainly a growth in programs and benefits supplied not to the poor, but to the middle classes. And even this day, over a third of all households that have incomes of $50,000 a year, uh, in some cases I think it's 50 to 75,000, depending on how you do the calculation, are receiving substantial government benefits of one kind or another. So here comes the question. <clears throat> Is it <clears throat> too late to recast the American social welfare state in a subsidiarity mold? Is it too late for responsible political leaders in both parties to fashion public policies that strengthen both lower class and middle class families and other civil institutions by relying first and foremost on them to be and to do what they are and what they should do and do best? Is it too late for faith-friendly laws that constitutionally reintroduce religion into the public square on behalf of the poor? Or, if I may restate these questions as a single overarching question, is it too late for a public philosophy that might merit the name compassionate conservatism, which to many would be a great oxymoron? And if it's not too late, how, if at all, might such a philosophy be translated from moral first principles into prudent policy rhetoric, from policy rhetoric into effective administrative action, and from administrative action into predictable and desirable social and civic consequences? The answer, I think, depends on many things. It depends, first, on the extent to which we frankly admit and recognize that we do not live in a post-poverty America. It depends on whether we truly resolve in common as one people and one nation under God to do something to help the least, the last, and the lost of our society, to protect and love our unborn children and future fellow citizens, to lift up and support our needy children, youth, and families, to mend broken lives, to minister to broken or, or breadless families, to care for the infirm or homebound elderly, and to always, always demand not just personal responsibility, which is always fashionable with conservatives, but also social justice from ourselves, even as we make the demands for individual or personal responsibility. Those two must always go together. It depends on whether we come to embrace subsidiarity, again, I'll say more about that in a moment, or something akin to subsidiarity in all its moral fullness and prudential richness, rejecting both socialist utopias and libertarian fantasies with equal vigor, 
and dedicating ourselves to revitalizing civil institutions, even as we rededicate ourselves to the idea that government at all levels can and should do what Mr. Roosevelt said it should do, which is to strive to help average men, women, and children to lead peaceful and productive, if not uniformly prosperous, lives. No guarantee of equal results, but an absolute guarantee of equal opportunity, and always and everywhere a guarantee from government at all levels of a helping hand when necessary, where appropriate. It depends on whether we understand contemporary government well enough to fashion a new science of public administration that is consistent with subsidiarity norms and responsive to public needs. It depends on whether we are blessed with the political and civic leaders who not only chart such a course in words and speech, but dedicate themselves to realizing it in truth and action. And with or without what Madison would call enlightened statesmen at the helm, my favorite, as I know my students are, I see them smiling, my favorite line of, of uh, the Federalist Papers, which some of them I know have read many times, uh, is from Federalist Number 10. It's just a passing line. Enlightened statesmen will not always be at the helm. The implication is they are now. <laughs> Me, George, you know, they are now. They won't always be. They are now. Will not always be at the helm. Well, m whether they're at the helm or not, it depends on whether we, the people, can reconstitute ourselves in service to the Madisonian conception of the common good as the permanent and aggregate interests of the community. What a conception. What a beautiful conception that is. The permanent and aggregate interests of the community. Not the fleeting interests, not the temporary interests, or the selfish interests, not the interests of the traffic cop who says, you stop and he can come and go, but something that's permanent and aggregate, a conception that conceives of the people much as Edmund Burke conceived them, namely as a community of citizens living, dead, and yet to be born, and which rejects this, this materialist fallacy uh, of all who Madison would rightly disparage as theoretic politicians, uh, whether they be on the left or the right, whether they be thoughtlessly addicted to government or reflexively allergic uh, to government. America is a land of unprecedented national plenty. Americans engage, enjoy uh, incredible economic prosperity. And since the welfare reform, excuse me, the welfare rolls peaked in early 1999, which of course was a few years before the federal welfare reform law went into effect, uh, the welfare rolls have dwindled dramatically in this country over the past six or seven years. I think probably because of a mix of good economic job conditions and state welfare reform laws and then that federal law that kicked in. But today is not the day for that particular debate. The point is we're doing okay. We're doing well by historical standards. We're, we're doing ridiculously well. Prosperity beyond belief. But we do not live in a post-poverty America. And if there is to be a compassionate conservatism, that must be understood and accepted fully. Otherwise, the, the compassion is empty. 
10% of all children aged 17 or younger live in families that are 50% or more below the poverty line. And that is $7,000, under, a little under $7,000 a year for a family of three in 1998. A third of all children ages six and younger who are below the poverty line live in households where somebody is working. This is the working poor. This is the mom who's off the welfare rolls and has got a job at the McDonald's, but then there's these kids over in the corner, and they're antsy because they've been sitting there for five hours because she doesn't have available to her adequate daycare. It's the face of poverty in America today. It's the face of the working poor. Now, I know that there are good scholars, and there are, whether they're liberal or conservative, but tends to be the conservative scholars, who will quibble, or, and then some, with these poverty line measures. They will tell you, and I will acknowledge they are correct in telling you, that if you monetize the value of Medicaid and other entitlement programs and benefits, that poverty measure shrinks. By one estimate I saw in a journal article last summer, it shrinks by as much as three quarters, leaving only a quarter of the official poverty population, which means leaving only still millions and millions and millions of children still in extreme conditions of material hardship. But I have yet to have any of my friends and colleagues who make these calculations, and some of them publish uh, annual op-ed pieces, you know, when these data come out, and they, they also talk about things like the poor in north-central Philadelphia and south-central Los Angeles have washing machines. Some of them have air conditioners. They get a lot of nutrition and calories. They've got electric stoves. They've got cars. Cars. Television sets. Implication? What are they complaining about? I have yet to have any one of my friends or colleagues, and I always send the note when I see the op-ed, I say, I have an offer of a lifetime. I will take you to 17th and Thompson in North Central Philadelphia and let you enjoy this luxurious, this luxurious conditions for as long as you like. Let you trade places with the people who are doing so well. And you'll see how many of them actually receive the full complement of federal entitlement programs. How many of their kids actually are hooked into the Medicaid Pediacare system. What fraction of the working poor actually get their earned income tax credit benefits. How many of those air conditioners are running if people can pay the electric bill. Oh, it'll be a good summer. Almost as good as Cape Cod. No one ever has taken me up on it. Offer stands. Now the question is, for compassionate conservatism, how do you respond to the reality of the poor and the working poor, having accepted it in the first place? Because you do not accept it, we have nothing left to talk about. But how do you respond then to the existence of needy and neglected and broken and breadless families, children, youth? I want to talk about subsidiarity for a moment. Now, I do so with a great deal of trepidation, not only because my esteemed colleague, uh, Professor George, is in the front row, uh, who has forgotten more about such things than I will ever know, because I know there are other eminent scholars in the room, so please accept this in the spirit of a you know, mere government official uh, who is playing around in your territory. Uh, subsidiarity, which comes to me, I know it has 
more distinguished pedigree, or uh, has a more, I should say distinguished, I'll be excommunicated. A, uh, it has a diverse uh, pedigree, uh, but it comes to me through reading in Catholic uh, tradition, Catholic social teaching, the Catholic catechism, which my cardinal, Anthony Bevilacqua in Philadelphia, gave me and told me to memorize uh, as I went to Washington. Um, <laughs> Subsidiarity says that the best place to begin, if not to begin and end, always and everywhere, in reaching out to the least, the last, the lost, children, youth, and families, people in need, people with broken lives, people to whom you must minister, people who seek a genuine, intimate connection with you as a mentor, is always and everywhere to begin, if possible, in that best department of health, education, and welfare that was ever created, the family, the family, to keep it all, if possible, in the family. And then if the family is inadequate to the task, as my grandmother's family, immediate family, was, then to reach out to those extended relatives, the aunts and the uncles and the cousins and the, well, some of my uncles you wouldn't want to reach out to, but I'll put that aside for the moment. They have this uh, Seventh-day Adventist thing, although they practice it every day. They didn't work at all. Um, now, I'm not turning this into a nightclub routine. Please don't get uh, work. Go to your extended family. If you don't have the extended family or that can't help, why then seek the charity of friends and of friends and neighbors, the charity of the church, the synagogue, the local mosque, the charity of the local civic and community group, Subsidiarity warns both the individual and the institutions of civil society and those who lead them not to be too quick, even when things are really tough, to make even the first and local call for help to government. The warning grows louder and more persistent whenever and wherever the call becomes long distance, either to a state or regional government or to any central or national government. The central state, subsidiarity teaches, must never usurp the responsibilities of individuals, the rights and obligations of family, the sanctity of mutually supportive friendships, the holistic life-supporting role of religious bodies, the rights and corresponding duties of people organized into non-religious civil bodies, or the governmental bodies that are closest to the citizenry. Individual, familial, spiritual, communal, local, says subsidiarity, is always better for all concerned, both as it were for the helpers and for the help, than impersonal or professionalized or bureaucratized or nationalized help. Better morally and better instrumentally as well. Why? What is the argument there? Well, here too I'm the grand simplifier. But in essence, subsidiarity says that the former, the local, the familial, the spiritual help is always better because it is mainly, and, not, and in not a few cases only, as family members, as friends, as co-members of communities of faith, and so forth, that we come to have a true and permanent regard for the well-being of others. Backed by the kind of intimate, or at least not depersonalized, knowledge of others and their situations that enable us to act prudently in recognizing their needs, in helping them, and whenever and wherever possible, in enabling them to help themselves, and then in turn to help others. 
Think about it for a moment. Think about it for a moment. If we really had a problem, and all of us in life have had them, we all would like to look first close by. Sometimes you look close by and there is nobody home. There's nobody beside, there's nobody around the corner. So there should be, a, there should be other ways of getting help. But we all look first, almost instinctively, to those who are closest to us. Confident in the knowledge that our true and permanent well-being will be their interest in reaching out to us. True and permanent well-being is another, is my phrase, is the way I would characterize that four-letter word, love. That's what it is. It's a it's your regard for the true and permanent well-being of someone. Meaning, you're making some judgments about what's good for them. Oh, you better, John Stuart Mill will not like it. He is not happy. This is not a principle of radical non-interference. I'm going to get in your stuff. I don't like the drugs you're taking. I don't like the people you're hanging around with. Uh, I want you to take these courses, not those. I want you to finish the thesis. <laughs> I'm going to get, and I'm going to get up close. I'm going to get intimate. Which is hard to do in this day and age because we, we seem to be committed in all spheres to pushing people away. You know, you, student comes to see you, don't close the door. You could be in trouble. Anything can happen. This is corruptive, the most fundamental way. We all look first to those, and we try to establish these relationships. We don't normally think of going far away for help with problems that are so deep in us. Now, conservatives, conservatives have always understood and defended, if you will, the keep it close, keep it communal, keep it personal, keep it individual side, the, if you will, the anti or non-statist half, if you will, of subsidiarity. It's my friend uh, Bill Buckley, William F. Buckley Jr., once quipped, he said, a liberal is someone uh, who feels compassion and immediately phones HUD. <laughs> but the flip of the quip is that a conservative is someone who feels compassion and never phones HUD. Conservatives hug the non-status side of subsidiarity so hard that they sometimes squeeze the social justice and common good stuffing right out of it. Subsidiarity's moral and prudential endgame, like Madison's moral and prudential endgame, was not limited government for its own sake. Let's have limited government because limited government is limited. It's government. It's limited government. Let's have limited government. It's not limited government for its own sake, or limited government at all costs. Limited government, it's World War II. Let's have limited government. Let's not mobilize everybody to defeat Hitler, because we have to continue to have limited government. It's not limited government for its own sake. It's not limited government at all costs. But limited government, when and where possible, and always and everywhere, even at the national level, as part of, as a reflection of, if you will, as an unobtrusive measure of, the proper and normal balance of rights and duties among and between citizens who take each other's true and permanent well-being seriously and to heart. In a properly ordered society, subsidiarity says, government will most of the time be quite limited, even at the center tells you what's going on beneath is people are reaching out and working with other people. They 
Things start to rush to the center and just sort of stay there. Something's wrong. Conservatives understand that. Subsidiarity does tell us it is a mistake. Indeed, in Catholic, uh, it's Catholic caste, subsidiarity tells us it is a sin to permanently displace or totally replace the individual, familial, and communal in favor of the impersonal, governmental, or national. But, this is the big but, but it also tells us, loud and clear, that it is also a mistake and a sin not to make that long-distance call, not to find the alternate collective, governmental, and even central state means of transacting our responsibilities to each other in deference to what morality and the common good require. Sometimes subsidiarity, in all its fullness, both sides of subsidiarity, if you will, requires, as it were, no seconds, no motions, and no expositors. We, the people, and our leaders sometimes just seem intuitively to get it. Take, for example, what happened a few years ago when watching the World Series, maybe it was more than a few years ago now, but watching the World Series, San Francisco, I believe, and there was an earthquake. I don't know how many of you saw that or watching. I remember watching it. And there it was, right in front of your eyes. People, I mean, fellow human beings, fellow human beings, fellow citizens, potential tragedy. Who here thought, and what person who would even call themselves a conservative, thought, well, that's San Francisco's problem. Well, that's Sacramento's problem. No. Immediately, instinctively. This is a pro and we have a federal emergency management agency. And out they went. They didn't stay forever. They didn't establish, they didn't occupy San Francisco and never leave. But they went, and they did what they had to do, and when it was over, when people could pick themselves up, they pulled back. Or take how everyone, it seemed, responded and reacted to the Oklahoma City bombing that killed so many innocent folks. First thing that happened was, from that moment on, and I've actually literally done the content analyses of newspapers and so forth, you, don't, you didn't hear much about faceless, mean, these bureaucrats. Remember, I used to bash the bureaucrats. Well, not when 100 plus of your fellow citizens and their children are lying dead in Oklahoma City. And you realize that these so-called bureaucrats, 90% of them are not living inside the Beltway, and they have families, and they have friends. Suddenly all that seemed a little harsh. And what happened? Well, friends and families consoled the victims' families. People stopped with this barbs about bureaucrats, at least for a good long while. And something that you didn't hear about reported. Only public administration nerds like me uh, would find out. But the Office of Personnel Management, the federal government, was flooded with calls from all over the country of federal employees saying, I'll give up my vacation time, let those folks who were there just take the half a year off or do whatever they have to do. That's subsidiarity. Now, fortunately, one might say, God is usually less decisive in teaching us subsidiarity uh, or dragging it out of us in these ways. But we seem to have no shortage of trouble understanding and acting in accordance with subsidiarity where the poor and other needy citizens are concerned. Over the last 35 or 40 years, I suggest to you, the dominant dysfunction here has been most definitely uh, from the left, from the political left, 
and has involved the progressive governmental socialization and centralization of all manner of helping functions. What I'm suggesting to you is that for the last 35 or 40 years, we have gotten it wrong, and we've gotten it wrong in terms of not heeding adequately the non-statist, the anti-statist side of the subsidiarity principle. That's why conservatives have a movement. That's what really made the conservative movement plausible even to people who were not necessarily wired that way. That's what could make the son of Conchetta Spagna say, well, I, you know, I'll never you know, not revere Mr. Roosevelt, and I'm a Democrat to the day I die, but these guys do have a point about so-called big government, intrusive government, in the way government. Too much has flowed to the center. Too much help has been professionalized. Too many of us have come to say when they see, we see a problem, I pay taxes and that is the job of. And we name the agency. We name the entity. Or we name the charity, even. The big distant charity. Now, I'm not trying to get in the way of certain organizations that raise money through payroll deductions, okay? I don't want to get in trouble here. But I'm just saying to you, there is a way, and there's a way, a sense in which, over the last 35 to 40 years, not only has government grown and crowded out, but also we've all become sort of habituated to transacting our moral and personal responsibility for the true and permanent well-being of others through distant others, who we merely give money to or have them extract taxes from our pockets. So far have we strayed from the anti-statist principles of subsidiarity that we have actually reached the point where it is a matter today of heated public debate among policy elites as to whether the national government ought to permit grassroots faith-based and community organizations to even participate in the public square on the same basis as any other non-governmental organizations. Now, I speak as a obvious, uh, in this respect, an obvious partisan uh, in this, uh, on this issue. But let me use it as the example, for it was the example that I would have used uh, here in any case. We have actually reached the point where many people insist that the national government is doing everything right when it gives tens and tens of billions of dollars a year to national nonprofit organizations to administer services at a vast difference, uh, distance from the people of poor communities. And who think that it would be doing everything wrong, indeed it would be violating the First Amendment, if the national government so much as relaxed bureaucratic rules and regulations that made it that make it so hard for local and grassroots faith-based and other community organizations to help their own friends and neighbors getting in the way of people delivering services directly to those who live in the places they live who shop at the stores they shop who walk the same streets even if they don't receive government money they're regulated and controlled because that must be done by those people way over there. Because they're the ones who are officially funded to do it. And we have a whole legal regime wrapped around them that protects their right to be, in effect, <coughs> monopoly providers of those services. And God forbid, in the minds of some, should government permit these same local communal folks and groups to compete for penny one of public support to administer services up close and personal 
and themselves. It is almost a complete inversion here that those who are closest, who have the greatest need and responsibility, are, as a matter of government, public policy, and law, pushed back, pushed away, unsupported. No good deed goes unpunished. Consider, if you will, the strange and, I tell you, still unfolding saga of so-called charitable choice. In 1996, President Clinton, who I have been defending the past uh, 12 weeks, uh, because it was President Clinton who signed in 1996 a provision into law backed by bi bipartisan support called charitable choice. The provision made it possible for community-serving faith-based organizations that supply certain social services to seek direct, that is, grants or contracts, or indirect, vouchers, certificates, or other, federal support for the provision of those services on the same basis as any other non-governmental providers of those services. Now, I repeat and emphasize the rather cumbersome locutions, supply certain social services for the provision of those services and any other non-governmental providers of those services, not because I am now fully a Washington bureaucrat, though I am, uh, but because I have learned over the past many weeks that unless one uses those precise locutions, there are people who will, for whatever reasons, talk about this thing as if it is about the federal government funding religion or giving funds to religion. That, to me, is like likening my purchase of a cheeseburger at a fast food restaurant as the Julio funding for McDonald's. Uh, now, obviously, that happens a great deal in my case. Uh, but it is not core funding for McDonald's. They must still give me my Big Macs and my quarter pounders and my filet and my two supersized fries. They must deliver them. I am purchasing a service from them. I am not marrying them. I am not core funding them. I am purchasing a service. They are a supplier. If I don't like them, I go to Burger King. Some days, obviously, I do both. But the point, <laughs> but the point remains, I am purchasing a service. And the service I am purchasing is what the transaction is about. I don't care about the Ray Kroc Foundation. He founded McDonald's. He had a great saying, you know, the world is full of educated derelicts, but it's only persistence that counts. I'm not buying his philosophy. I don't care what they believe. I want my hamburger, and I'll pay for it. I'm purchasing a service. You never hear the locution, government funding for secular nonprofit organizations. You never hear that locution. Never. You never hear the locution, government funding for profit-making firms. You never hear that locution. Yet the fact is that almost every domestic policy program that the federal government funds today, in whole or in part, has been and continues to be administered not by federal employees themselves, but through federal grants, contracts, vouchers, and other disbursement arrangements with vast networks of non-governmental organizations. There are roughly six people who earn their paycheck from Washington indirectly for every one federal civil servant who administers government social service programs. My former Brookings Institution colleague, uh, Don Kettle, of the University of Wisconsin, has termed this post-World War II federal system of domestic public administration government by proxy. Professor Lester Salmon of Johns Hopkins University terms it third-party government, and he has estimated that by 1980, 20 years ago, about 40% of all federal domestic program funds were being administered through nonprofit organizations. 
the vast majority of them large and secular. <clears throat> Professor Stephen Monsma of Pepperdine has documented the limited extent to which religious congregations and other faith-based organizations were involved in the public administration of federal and other government programs. His research and other good research by other good scholars like Harvard's Mary Jo Bain shows that the involvement of faith-based organizations in government-funded social service delivery programs has generally been concentrated among a small number of very large religious organizations. Catholic Charities, which I love dearly, Cardinal, and Lutheran Social Services alone get over $5 billion a year in government support to administer social services. That's great. That's wonderful. That's terrific. But that's also far more than grassroots community-serving organizations that provide many of the same services get across any number of cities. To get even a penny's support through government-by-proxy programs, religious groups generally have had to secularize their messages, secularize their service delivery systems, and even secularize their physical plants. What my good friend, former U.S. Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan terms an iron law of emulation was in full force. Having secularized and nationalized and reorganized themselves to comport with the government's grant-making process and protocols, many participating religious organizations secularized themselves and received ever more of their funds from government directly. Meanwhile, literally tens of thousands of smaller grassroots and community-serving congregations and faith-based organizations, social service delivery organizations, made bricks and continue to make bricks without straw, garnering no public and little private support for the social services they provide. This is amazing when you consider, you go to Newark, or you go to Philadelphia, so I'll let you go north or south. And you go to these neighborhoods and you ask, who does the housing rehab? Who runs the after-school preschool programs? Who, runs, who, does, who does the prison outreach or the prison ministries? Who's doing the homeless shelters? Who's working with, on a day-to-day -day basis, the drug addicts? It's a remarkable finding. 25, 35, 40, 50 percent of the work, depending on the service, is being done by organizations that are there in the community, have grassroots people, volunteer-based, right there. What fraction of government support do they get? What fraction of all support the government gives to administer services in these areas do these groups get? Well, we're about to find, we're, I could say now after 12 weeks, we're fixing to find out. I haven't got fixing down yet, fitting, fitting to find out. We have a cabinet agency audit we're doing across five agencies. We're going to look at this, but we've gotten some preliminary data. It's less than 1%. There's 130 different, over 130 different federal youth-serving youth outreach programs across the cabinet agencies, the Corporation for National Service, and the Office of National Drug Control Policy. Over 130 programs. The vast majority of the money goes to nonprofit organizations. Doing a great job, aren't they? Kids are getting, you know, kids are reading at grade level in Newark. Have you heard? Been through the after-school program. They're reading at grade. The housing rehab, tens of millions of dollars in Philadelphia. We've got a fifth of our housing stock that is falling down, decrepit, in our poorest neighborhoods. But the money's being spent. But the government by proxy network is not working with the people in the communities 
who actually get the job done. Oh, I'm sorry, it is working with them, it's just that they can't get any of the money. You see, this group over here gets the money, and then they explain how complex it is to people on the streets who do the work. And the leaky bucket goes on and on and on until it gets down to the streets of North Central Philadelphia or Dorchester, Boston or South Central LA or downtown Detroit. And you hear folks say it all the time. Man, I hear this money's getting spent. I heard the government has $250 billion. And look at this neighborhood. Look at this blight. You got drug addicts, can't get them into treatment. What's going on? That's what's going on. That's what's been going on for 30 plus years. And that's what's got to stop in deference to subsidiarity norms and just good common sense. The Constitution does not erect a wall of separation between common sense and social compassion. What that 1996 charitable choice provision that President Clinton signed does and what three subsequent provisions do and what we're proposing to do by just extending it and implementing the existing law better than it's been implemented is permit these nonprofit, smaller, grassroots groups to compete for social service funding administration support on the same basis as everybody else, open and closed, period. All federal anti-discrimination laws apply, can't discriminate against beneficiaries, etc. period. No proselytizing, no sectarian worship, no public funds for other than public purposes. One thing that makes it controversial, among others, is that we're saying to the people who are close to the other people, so they don't have to come to the people to whom they're close in disguise to provide the services. What do I mean by that? Charitable Choice 96 says, if you're housing rehab and you, got, you park your lumber in the churchyard and you receive some support, you can hum hymns while you hammer nails. If you got the health clinic at Holy Redeemer in Camden, it's the only one in those blocks. Sorry, there is no ample and equivalent secular alternative. It's sitting there, but... You go there and they could say, God bless you, even when you haven't sneezed. They don't have, you don't have to take down the cross or the crescent or the Star of David. You don't have to be Mr. Vincent DePaul. You can be Saint Vincent DePaul. Okay? You can be who you are so your neighbors who are up close can recognize you. You don't have to come looking like you are one of them. Because that's what the laws and the rules and regulations do. Well, if you want to provide services to your neighbors, you need to look and sound like us. In fact, you need to have degrees like us. You may have to get a degree from Princeton, which is going to be hard and expensive, as you know. You may have to get a credential. Oh, the guy in Camden, poor Miguel Torres. He doesn't know anything about drug treatment. He doesn't have a degree. He never even completed high school. He's just been out of jail for 20-some years, missing a few teeth, got two bullet holes in the back of his head, and has worked with hundreds and hundreds of kids and people on the streets of Camden for low these many years. What's his budget? He doesn't know. Because they, they, they dress themselves out of the same clothing bins that they use for the homeless folks in the neighborhood. But when he wants to get an auxiliary facility for those youth programs, and he has these volunteers, and he doesn't clean up too well. Sorry, Miguel. You don't look right. You don't talk right. You don't smell right. It's not for you. It's for the guys from out of town. They'll come here and take care of it the way they've taken care of Camden for the last 45 years. That's got to stop.
This elevation of credentialism over experience, the assertion that qualification is a function of certification, it's not. It's not. I hear quite often that this is a dangerous creed I'm preaching because, you know, this is going to really, this is really not based on good evidence. I mean, after all, how, how many, how many Miguels and how many people are there? Well, I'll tell you exactly how many. In Philadelphia, we have a 20-page questionnaire and a three-hour site visit at each of 2,000 community-serving congregations, and we found that they provide over 215 different types of social services. And we find that over 90% of the, these congregations provide more than one service, and we find that the primary beneficiaries of these services are neighborhood children and youth who are not themselves members of the congregation that serves them. And I'm using the royal we here. It's my, my, my colleague who's led this study for the last five or six years, Ram Kanan of the University of Pennsylvania. And Ram finds that, fascinatingly to some, but not to those who have been out there on the streets, that these individuals do not make, I mean, you can count on your fingers and toes across those thousand-plus congregations, the number that make entering the buildings, receiving the services, or participating in the programs in any way contingent upon any expression of religious faith whatsoever. They serve primarily non-congregants. Nine, uh, on average, of the 24 volunteers, on average, are themselves non-congregants. And many of them are not even co-religionists. But they have one thing in common. They are from the neighborhood. They are from the neighborhood. So that's one kind of evidence. What about the evidence that religious commitment and so forth makes? Well, there's a small growing body of social science, you know, ready for prime time evidence that religious commitment varies inversely with all manner of social problems. It's not definitive yet. And there's even less evidence on particular faith-based programs for drug treatment, for alcohol treatment, for particular programs. That's certainly the case. But it's one thing to say that the evidence on the extent and efficacy of community-anchored and faith-based approaches to social problems and needs is not definitive. And another thing to turn a blind eye to the 30-plus years of wholly secularized, depersonalized, distant, anti-subsidiarity, pro-statist approaches, where the evidence is definitive. It's definitively negative. Negative in getting poor children reading at grade level. Negative in rehabbing housing. Negative in moving people from welfare to work. Negative in supplying loving, caring mentors at scale. Negative in reaching people where they live and breathe with adequate health care, both elder care and pediatric care. Negative in restoring substance abusers to mental, emotional, and physical health. Negative in rehabilitating and reintegrating prisoners as they exit back into the bosom of the law-abiding, tax-paying community. Negative. 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 You don't have to beat Trump here. You don't have to do really super well. You just have to beat what's out there. They don't have to be like Joe Lewis, these little programs. Every day deliver a knockout. You know, it's like what Joe Lewis said to his, you know, his trainer told Joe Lewis. Joe Lewis was afraid the judges were racist. So he went to his trainer and said, what I got to do? These judges are probably racist. Well, the trainer said, hey, knock them out. <laughs> you don't want to go to the cards? Knock them out. These little groups can deliver knockout blows. I can cite you chapter and verse of ones that have, but hey, that's a little high standard. We don't ask that of any of these programs, which, on which we have no evaluation research in most cases that we've been funding for 10 and 15 and 20 and 30 years. Suddenly, every round, first bell, first minute has to be a knockout. That's an interesting threshold. Let me, by way of conclusion, however, 
just so you don't think I'm, I'm beating up on, on those who have forgotten the anti-status side of subsidiarity, let me conclude by beating up on conservatives. You would think it would be impossible, at least I would think it would be impossible, to imagine a more perverse state of affairs, a more anti-subsidiarity understanding than the one that forbids government to enter into meaningful partnerships and devolve resources and responsibilities to those community helpers and healers who are closest to the people who have the needs. It would seem that nothing could be more perverse, and yet I think I do know something more perverse, namely the way some so-called conservatives respond to this very same reality. What do they say? Well, they say, I don't know, because if government starts funding yet another set of people, you're just going to have another set of patronage politics and distributive politics, and, and maybe, just maybe, government will go away. If we close our eyes and, and wish really hard, come on, everybody, close your eyes. No more three cabinet agencies will disappear, and we won't have a $2 trillion federal budget, and so it's all going to go away, because we want it to go away, because we don't like it. Or they say, well, it'd be okay if you could do it all with vouchers. Just voucherize everything. Everybody gets a voucher for everything. Okay? Nobody gets any direct grants, it's all vouchers. Voucherize this and voucherize that and voucherize you and voucherize me and we will just be, you know, we'll be loaded down with vouchers walking around, you know. Where's my, where's my health care? Wait a minute. Oh, that's my school voucher. Wait a minute. Oh, here it is. Here's my health care voucher. Has anybody noticed that the federal government doesn't work that way? What is the practical alternative to people who say they believe in limited government and are concerned about preserving such limited government as is left and who claim to be the proponents, the advocates of subsidiarity? What is the practical alternative? There's only one practical alternative, and conservative, compassionate or not, supposed to begin, I, I thought, with a sober recognition of the facts. Not a, an imaginary republic, not a utopian scheme. Government's been around. Good, better, and different. Love it or loathe it. Fifty years of expansion of the social welfare state. Now, what's your best option? Your best option is to take more of those resources and re-empower and reinvigorate the civil and social institutions, the families, the churches, not saying government can't do and shouldn't do more on its own in many respects, because it must. Not falling into the fallacy of saying, well, if we're going to do that, maybe we can just, oh, we get rid of government again. Come on, everybody, because we'll make them do everything. Folks, there's 353,000 congregations in America. They raise about $80 billion a year. That's for everything they do. If you double it to $160 billion, you've got still $40 billion short of what the federal government alone spends each year in anti-poverty and social welfare programs. And that's not counting the $70 billion plus a year the states spend on Medicaid. You can't get there that way. You need both, but you need partnerships. That's the real option for people who really care and who really want to be the next generation of helpers and healers. I want to just conclude very quickly. I know I've run over time. I've given the lie to my saying I'm not going to be like the professor, but let me just conclude briefly by uh, no talk would be complete without a reference to my boss. Um, I never had a boss before. 
as you well know, uh, academics don't have bosses. They have presidents and so forth, but they basically do whatever they want. Um, oh, I didn't hear many laugh, not much laughter there among the academics. <laughs> Truth hurts, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what my boss said on July 22nd, 1999. It was his first campaign speech. They called it the duty of hope. I confess I had a hand in helping write it, but I also had a hand in writing Vice President Gore's speech, so equal time. Uh, President Bush, uh, or go then Governor Bush, out outlined his overarching, what he called compassionate conservative. That's where we got this, got this thing started here. Vision. And he said, and I quote him here, we should abandon the destructive idea that if government would only get out of the way, all our problems would be solved. Called it a destructive idea. Pretty tough stuff. He said, next, he said, look first to faith-based organizations, charities, and community groups that have shown their ability to save and change lives. But be willing to admit that the challenges faced by such groups are often greater than their resources. There are some things that government should be doing, like Medicaid for poor children. Government cannot be replaced by charities, but it can welcome them as partners, not resent them as rivals. Ultimately, whether there is a compassionate conservatism, whether that is a governing philosophy that, as it were, can have legs, whether it is something that we can rally around ourselves, not only from a standpoint of governmental administration, but as fellow citizens, remains to be seen. What, for example, can be salvaged from the wreck of 100-plus federal so-called youth and family programs spread across all those cabinet agencies, administered under hundreds of contradictory laws and court orders, and funded without any real regard for whether they have a positive impact on the life prospects of those whom they serve? How to identify and get the best, the, the strongest, the most results-oriented faith-based organizations, charities, and community groups into the vast network of government by proxy, uh, how to do that in a way that is timely, how to determine which faith-based drug treatment, welfare to work, or other programs actually work, and how best to monitor their performance over time. Is there any practical way for a presidential administration to link community-based health care ministries, say, to the growing need for services and volunteers standing in behind our public health service delivery systems for the infirm and homebound elderly? These are just some of the practical questions. God and the devil both are in these details. James Madison, uh, in my other favorite portion of the Federalist Papers, Federalist 51, has that wonderful definition of constitutionalism, you know, but what is government itself but the greatest of all reflections on human nature? If men were angels, no government would be necessary. If angels were to govern men, neither internal nor external controls on government would be necessary. In framing a government which is to be administered by men over men, the great difficulty lies in this. You must first enable the government to control the governed, and in the next place, oblige it to control itself. The question for compassionate conservatism as a governing philosophy, as a practical means of rallying support to those in our society who need it most, is whether even in a society where men and women both are not angels, whether we have the intestinal fortitude, the fellowship within us to reach out and across the usual racial and denominational 
and now urban-suburban divides, and do that as partners with our government, with our churches, synagogues, mosques, and other faith communities, with our local civic associations, with our colleges and universities. Such wonderful things have happened all across this country when people have done that. So I hope and pray uh, that we are able to do more and come back a generation hence and say, what is compassionate conservatism? I don't know, but it is a wonderful, much better society than it was when people started talking about it a generation ago. So may God bless you and thank you for your patience. Thank you very much, uh, Professor DiIulio. Uh, it's a great pleasure to have you back and uh, uh, to remember what it was like then. Uh, you're welcome here anytime. Uh, let's uh, open the floor now for, uh, for, for questions. Yes, sir, right here. Uh, the question really was, aren't there ways through the tax system to incent charitable giving, including for those who may not itemize on their taxes or who you know, may not be in the higher uh, economic brackets? And the answer is, we think so. Where are we here being the, the Bush folks? Um, he's proposed a uh, uh, he has a proposal pending in Congress. It's in this bill, H.R. 7, now before the House. There's also a Senate version proposed by Senator Lieberman and San Senator Santorum that basically permits non-itemizers to deduct for charitable contributions on their taxes. And there are a bunch of related proposals. We estimate, or I should say uh, independent sector, which I think commissioned the study, estimates that were that proposal to pass without a floor, it would generate about $15 billion a year in additional charitable giving, which ain't bad. I mean, it's good. It's not won't get us where we really need to be, but that's pretty good. And it will certainly, uh, a lot of that money will go to community-based organizations, not just, uh, you know, organizations, nonprofits that are already doing pretty well, we, we believe. Good. Uh, I'm going to ask uh, the Associate Director of the Madison Program, uh, Dr. Shauna Segru, uh, to bring the microphone around uh, to questioners. This way we'll be able to catch your question on the videotaped uh, version of Dr. Giulio's uh, talk. So could you give the microphone to this fellow right down here? I'm sorry. Sorry, I don't know your name, but there it is. Thank you. Um, Professor Diulio, um, given the politi political axiom that opponents in the policy arena will not lie down, but generally will rather will fight back, how do you plan to counter those, both probably on the right and the left, who take issue with the idea of government funding of faith-based initiatives? Well, um, how, we, how do we intend to, to counter uh, those who are taking issue on the left and the right? Um, I'm just going to get all their names and 
and uh, I visit them at some point. That's right. Uh, Big Guido. Uh, that's right. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Uh, basically, um, we, I, I really do believe that this is one where the truth will out. Now, I could be wrong, uh, and that's not what I've been teaching my students for you know, most of the last 20 years. It's amazing how those lessons, kids, just go flying out the window when you're under pressure. Um, but uh, I believe the truth will out. The locution government funding for religion is a killer. The media use it all the time. The locution, uh, that's the locution, kindred locution suggesting that we're, you know, interested, or the President Clinton, again, who signed it in the past four times, was interested in violating the separation of church and state, or discriminating against beneficiaries, or, you know, having these other horrible things happen. All, all we're trying to do, and we, I was I testified yesterday in the House of Representatives, uh, two hours we're there, uh, got pretty good and beat up, uh, get beat up just about every day. Uh, my provost at Penn is a neuroscientist uh, who also grew up in South Philadelphia. I say we're in exactly the same position. The only thing is he studies the brain. I get my brains beat in uh, every day. Um, but I believe that we're just, you know, we're just staying, we're, just, we're staying on message, not for political reasons, but because we believe, the president believes so deeply in this. It's the one thing I think that really consistently makes him come out of his boots. Um, and if you saw the address that he made, his first address to the Congress in February, he looked up to the gallery, and there sitting in the gallery next to a First Lady Bush was my Philadelphia mayor, John Street, African-American activist. Couldn't have two people who came up from more different circumstances than George W. Bush and John F. Street, and yet there they are. They both get it, same vision, same heart, same plan. You know, Mayor Street beat the uh, then-governor by 400,000 votes in Philadelphia. Uh, unless people think the president is, Willie, is the Willie Moscone of electoral politics, oh, let's see, I'll, he'll beat me by 350,000 votes the next time. Yeah, that'll, that'll do it. Uh, this, he said it. Some things are bigger than politics. This may be the only thing in Washington that is truly bigger than politics. Uh, we hope to keep it on a bipartisan basis. The president is a unifier, not a divider. And... Uh, <laughs> And, uh, and, we, and we believe if we can keep it that way, you know, and just keep, keep pounding at this, eventually we'll wake up one morning and we'll have the authorization we need to, you know, get this job done. The most successful government program that I and millions of other veterans experienced was the GI Bill of Rights. Aren't there aspects of that that are similar to what you believe in? Absolutely. Uh, the GI Bill of Rights was indeed one of the most successful uh, government programs ever, along with, if I may say, Social Security and aspects of Medicare and others. Um, and with the GI Bill, one notes, although I gave vouchers a hard time a minute ago, it is the case that you could, take your, you could have taken your GI Bill money and you could have gone to Yeshiva, or you could have gone to Notre Dame, or you could have gone to Princeton. You'd be theologically confused uh, if you went to all those places, but... You know, uh, but that, what is education anyway but confusion on a higher plane? I mean, after all. Uh, but uh, but uh, you could do that. What people object to when you talk about that approach, a GI Bill approach, say, regarding younger folks, children, or a GI Bill approach regarding people who are sort of drug addicts or people who feel, people who are not completely in the possession, perhaps, of their faculties, where they may feel coerced but be unable to express that they feel coerced into particular kinds of programs or being offered a list of choices when they're not really able to make a choice. Those are the arguments you hear. We don't believe in those arguments. Uh, we think they're paternalistic to a degree that's not healthy. Again, 
When you start doubting the capacities, you start doubting the ability of average citizens to figure out their own interests in relation to the opportunities available to them, when you start saying you're not smart enough to decide where to send your kids to school, you're not smart enough to decide which drug treatment program to enter, you're not smart enough to vote with your feet if you don't like the social service here. That's why charitable choice was called charitable choice. It's really better called beneficiary choice, and we hope that uh, Senator Santorum, who's bill in the Senate, uh, would be called beneficiary choice, that we change that from charitable to beneficiary to really emphasize that that's what it's about, letting poor folks have the same options that all middle class and upper middle class folks have when it comes to seeking services. Yes, sir. I may be the only person in this room who, who still disagrees with you, and, and you don't make it easy. Um, but if I could take the argument uh, that I've heard from those who disagree from you on the right, and I, I think they, uh, Pat Robertson, say, gives the argument pretty much as I understand it, and, and I, I find myself bizarrely agreeing with him. Uh, if I'm in need in my neighborhood, uh, I'm an evangelical Protestant. The evangelical Protestant church has a government contract. I have no problem going there for my social services. Um, St. Vincent's has a government contract. I have no problem going there either. Uh, but as we start moving along, uh, the Scientologists have the government contract. I'm a little uncomfortable there. Uh, the Nation of Islam has the government contract. They're the only one in my neighborhood that does. I'm really, really uncomfortable. I may not go for social services at all in that sort of situation. Um, given that sort of situation, uh, in order to prevent that, it would seem the government has to decide what are acceptable faith-based uh, organizations and what are not. That looks an awful lot like discrimination between religions. Uh, I think we can all agree that getting my, uh, my daily bread from St. Vincent's, they shouldn't have to hide who they are if they get the government money. But then again, it would seem that the Nation of Islam shouldn't have to hide who they are if they get the government money. And how do we right. make it such that that situation doesn't arise without actively violating the First Amendment? Well, I, I, I want to... Um First of all, say just just say so. I'm not misunderstood. You know, I, I have a great deal of respect for Reverend Robertson, and uh, um, think that he has said all that he has said in the best, you know, in good faith, if you will. But as I have pointed out in various communications, um, public and private, um, that whole discussion is based on a massive misunderstanding, a massive misconception. Under federal law, in 1950. 1980, 2000, today, tomorrow, and probably forevermore. No one, absolutely no one, can prevent any organization whatsoever from applying, answering a government request for proposal if they can afford the postage and can fill out the form. Any organization can apply. Indeed, the Nation of Islam in particular, before charitable choice, did apply and did get a grant to perform housing security services in public housing complexes. Um, you know, any organization, Scientologists, sociologists even, uh, uh, where, where I have a real uh, problem, um, um, uh, uh, especially prison sociologists, but I'm going to just stop uh, there, um, can, can apply. In, in that crowd, I remember they used to call you a uniter, not a divider. That's right, a divider, that rather, yes, yes. A basher, not a trasher, or a thrasher. Um, but the, the reality is any group can apply, and, you know, there can be under constitutional law, no list, a pre-approved list of you know, qualified procurement organizations. What, what charitable choice does is exactly the opposite. In fact, Reverend Robertson's um, suggestion was that my office establish such a list by some criteria. 
I mean, that's, you know, I, I wouldn't, know, I wouldn't want to do that. I mean, that's, that's, you know, that's, that's, that's the, that's the Pandora's box. What, what, what the law, what charitable choice says is, look, for all the last 40, 50 years, as we've built this massive network of social programs administered largely through non-governmental, non-profit organizations, the only groups when they have sent in a proposal where we've asked, who are you, not, it's a, Hamburger delivery, it's a hamburger social service program. Are you providing hamburgers? Yes, you're providing hamburgers. Here are the procurement rules. Here are the performance criteria. Here are the procedures. If you can meet those procedures, there is no constitutional entitlement not to have money go to organizations you don't like. Professor George and I can give you a short list of organizations that we don't like. And they don't like us. Uh, and they don't like us. Um, and, uh, you know, people can have ideological, theological, or other grounds. But the fact is, I cannot deduct on my taxes. I can't say, let me see all the money that's going to the nonprofit organizations, the government funds that I don't like, or whose purposes I don't agree with, or whose ideology or theology violates my views as an orthodox believer or whatever, and let me deduct from my taxes. You will go to jail. You will, you will actually see the only direct administered program the federal government has, the Federal Bureau of Prisons. Um, uh, so you, you, this issue of having to pick and choose among is, is a non-issue. It's a, it's a bit of a red herring, if not a blue whale. Now, what is, what is important about that issue, what is important about it is to be very, very clear with respect to beneficiaries, because you raise that issue, you know, how would I feel going to a given organization? Well, the, the, the law is absolutely crystal clear. I mean, there's no debate. About it. I read in the New York Times today, uh, a report on a, on a uh, testimony I gave yesterday in the House, um, and, and all I will say is that you know, they said, we, we said that we equivocated on the question of whether you could proselytize with it. It's stated like five times in the testimony, and you know, we said it like 15 times. You know, but you know, one of the House members gave a particular example, and so with respect to that example, there was a legal question where I felt a little bit like Sam G and Kana. You know, the hearings to my mouthpiece. You know. Uh, <laughs> But, uh, you know, it's clear, you can, every single civil rights anti-discrimination law applies to the beneficiaries. You cannot discriminate against beneficiary on the basis of race, creed, national origin, disability, gender, you just, and religion. You can turn no one away, and the government must ensure that if it is putting penny one into a faith-based organization that is administering social services in a neighborhood, that there are ample and equivalent secular alternatives. Now, I gotta tell you that I don't like that provision of law all that much because I know what that means in West Philadelphia, where the only providers right now of a number of crucial services are community churches, community serving ministries. And I gotta tell you, having been in Shreveport, Louisiana last week, when I explained this to a town meeting of folks there with US Senator Mary Landrieu, a fellow Democrat, um, we got some really, you know, unhappy reactions from the folks. They well, we're rural over here. You know, we may be only like, you know, your choice of three different Baptist drug treatment programs. You mean we can't get help? And the answer is sorry. We can't go there in the first place. Now, I don't like it, but that's the law. And, and it's probably a good because in our rush to want to help and get resources and have people not make bricks without straw, sometimes we'll do things and that would be a problem. But under the charitable choice law, you must have ample and equivalent secular alternatives. If, as in the case of the one organization in Philadelphia, Cookman Methodist, run by Pastor Donna Jones, if you walk into her as you know a woman from the neighborhood did, who's a Muslim woman, and you don't want to, you know, there's a little prayer service, you can opt out. 
You have the right to opt out. There is no coercion. And, you know, you can get on the computer-assisted, you know, uh, job training, you know, search thing earlier. Um, they, they, the law is clear. Now, it's complicated and hard to do, but that's not a good reason to be paralyzed and to not do it. It's hard to do, but for the last four and a half years since Charitable Choice, although it hasn't gone anywhere in 31 states, for reasons I could talk about at great length but won't, the fact of the matter is there have been studies of what has actually happened in, nine, in the nine states where Charitable Choice has been most active. And if you read the report, which is available from this uh, group called the Center for Public Justice, you can go on their website, I think the report by Dr. Amy Sherman of the Hudson Institute is very reassuring. In only two cases across nine states, two individual cases in nine states in four and a half years, did anybody have a problem getting a secular alternative when they wanted it? In no cases was a beneficiary discriminated against. Now, I'm not saying that track record will last, you know, so in all 50 states for 50 years, but I am saying it is very reassuring. The empirical record here is reassuring. You, sir. Dr. Delulio, my name is uh, Daryl Armstrong. I'm a pastor of a Shadow Baptist Church in Trent, New Jersey, and greatly appreciate your presentation today. And I'm here also representing many of my colleagues and the concerned pastors and ministers of Trenton and vicinity. Um, I was in Washington, D.C. this past Wednesday for the summit and heard uh, elderly, I believe it is, from the White House um, make use the same terminology, armies of compassion. And him hearing you talk about compassionate conservatism today, um, as many of you know, tonight and all this week, Ted Koppel has been giving the president his 100-day report card. And he, in that statement, or in the evening program, he's talked about the fact that President Bush and his domestic and even international policies have talked compassion but acted conservatively. And I think my concern, and I think I share the concern for many, is that the talk is good, and, and I applaud the action of putting the bill forth, but I still have the the trepidation that there is uh, very much a very conservative agenda of dismantling the public safety net. And um, how do we really guarantee that the money and that uh, that's going to go to the faith-based organization isn't just another guise of privatization? And while ministers and faith-based organizations run to the money over here, we're dismantling the public safety net over here. It's a great question, and, and it, it comes up uh, uh, a lot. Um, came up, uh, didn't come up at the summit the other day. But it, it, it came up uh, the other night. I was at Christ Church in Philadelphia, which is, uh, you know, I don't know if you ever, you, if you haven't visited, you ought to. It's an historic, George Washington sat there, Ben Franklin's buried there, uh, remarkable, remarkable place for a town, town meeting. And that question came up, as it often does. And, and here's what I, what I will tell you. If you're asking whether, in fact, uh, the program that President Bush has outlined is as, uh, uh, generous or increases spending as much as many of my fellow Democrats would like, the answer is no. If the question is, does it increase spending across most areas of social service delivery in real terms and increase it substantially in some areas like education by 11.5 percent, et cetera, the answer is it does. Um, if the question is, you know, interestingly, how big are the differences between Democrats and Republicans in terms of the amount of money, that shouldn't be the only measure, but that is going to these things, those differences, despite the so-called ideological polarization of the parties over the past seven to ten years in particular, have actually narrowed. 
which is to say we have a reality and we have to face this reality squarely and I'm using the royal we here as in we people of goodwill and fellowship and whether we're people, whether we're Muslims, Methodists, Mormons, or good people of no faith at all. And that reality is that, it, you know, out of sight, out of mind. We live in a country where we've exurbanized. In 1992, a majority of all house districts became predominantly suburban, and that's okay. Everybody's participated in that kind of movement and prosperity. It's, you know, it's not just one people of one race or one demographic description. But the reality is, if you're, again, back to subsidiarity, distant, if you don't have working class folks and lower class folks and some middle class folks interacting in neighborhoods, if people are segregating themselves that way, you're going to have less compassion of any kind for people who you don't see, you don't interact with. And so it's very hard, an urban agenda, as I talked to Senator Moynihan about a couple weeks ago, an urban agenda is hard to put forward. The good news is, both from President Bush and from friends like Joe Lieberman in the Senate, you've had more talk if you actually analyze, and I'm not saying talk is action, you know, action's to come, but you've had more talk about poverty and urban poverty and the plight of the poor the last, since this campaign than you've had in several previous or several recent presidential campaigns. That's just simply the reality. Because I think it's in the hearts of a lot of these folks. Now, whether this is a Trojan horse for something, I, I could tell you if I thought that, if I thought, and I'm not, a, you know, I'm no genius, but if I thought that was the case, I had nothing to do with it. I believe it's about two things. I believe it's about, first and foremost, even if, let's just make a hypothesis, let's say the money in real terms remained constant. Like there was, there's, you know, it's the same 300 billion, which ain't chicken feed, the social service delivery. The leaky bucket effects that now go on by the time the money gets from Washington to Trenton are enormous. The rakes that get taken. You know, it's like 12 Las Vegas casinos at the poker table. They're taking the rake and the rake and the rake and the rake, and it gets there and there's nothing left. This program, the emphasis on government performance and results, the emphasis on opening up the government by proxy network to new providers, the emphasis on fostering partnerships between larger and smaller organizations, trying to incent that, trying to have funds the president has proposed for capacity building through this Compassion Capital Fund, these things will lessen the leaky bucket effects. So that at a minimum, the same dollar, more of it will reach those community helpers and healers so that the rest of us are helping those who help the least of these relatively more, even with the same money. But it's not the same money because the money is growing, has grown in real terms. Again, that's a macro policy debate. That's in part what makes Democrats Democrats and Republicans Republicans. And, uh, and there will always be disagreements of that kind. But I will tell you that in real terms, uh, I believe that over the next three to five years, there's going to be a demonstration effect. It's not that the American people have just sort of put these urban problems and community needs out of their minds entirely. It's that we've learned, unfortunately, the rational lesson. It's not healthy for people to see all this money spent and, and still see the blight and still see the problems and still see the need. It makes you feel like nothing works. Well, some things do work. And that's the biggest thing, really, I would say to you, not in defense of the president, because uh, I don't think he needs any defense, but I would say to you on behalf of this program and this vision he has, which is he, he believes that these things can work and that when you show people that they work, people will be even more generous 
and more willing to fund them both through their tax dollars as well as through their private, their private charitable contributions. And he is bold enough to do something. If you noticed, uh, not many people did because the press immediately went hysterical. Whoa, church and state, you know, on the day he announced. It was like, <laughs> it was like let's, let's go hysterical now for three weeks. Um, but he did something quite radical the day he announced my office, which is standing next to me was former mayor of Indianapolis, Stephen Goldsmith. Now, he asked Mayor Goldsmith to serve as the chairman of the Corporation for National Service, among whose programs is AmeriCorps. Now, if you've followed the debates, you know, AmeriCorps, this program takes college-educated folks, give them a little stipend, and puts them in behind community groups and so forth, desperately needed in Trenton, college-educated kids working in small groups, have some of them in Philadelphia. It's wonderful, you know. AmeriCorps volunteers, cross-be-dangled nuns, and good things happen. Republicans traditionally didn't like AmeriCorps. Some people called it paid volunteerism. It's not a perfect program. I had a Ph.D. student here at Princeton, Rob Gordon, who's a colonel at West Point now, uh, who did his dissertation on AmeriCorps. Senator Harris Wofford of Pennsylvania was a great proponent of it and helped to run the program, had great ideas. But there was a, it was a partisan issue. President Bush, in one move, took it off the table as a partisan issue, put it squarely on the table as a bipartisan issue, and said, okay, look, 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 look. We're going to spend some more money. We're going to try to do this differently. We're going to try to wire in the smaller grassroots groups. We're not going to discriminate against them, at least. We're going to level the playing field. And I'm willing to, just right now, I'm putting my, the guy who advised me, Domestic policy, my whole campaign, Steve Goldsmith, I'm giving this such priority. I'm asking him to chair this corporation, doing a 180 to some extent on the you know, traditional policy. There's a lot of money involved. It's not, a, it's not a, you know, a cheap program. And to drive community and faith initiatives better. So I, don't, I say to you, though, uh, and I say this to everyone, uh, and I say it to myself, keep your eyes open. Keep your eyes on the prize because the proof of the pudding will be in the eating here. We will know in two to three years, you know, whether people have put their hips where their lips are on a whole range of things. And I, 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 I certainly, uh, if I'm uh, in that number, I certainly would want to be held accountable myself. We just have time for a couple more uh, questions, John. Uh, you, ma'am? Um, doesn't a truly compassionate conservatism mean offering protection to the child in the womb and support to pregnant women in need? You're asking me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You're asking, you're asking a guy who was with certain people on the exploratory uh, presidential campaign of Robert Casey, uh, uh -huh. Pennsylvania governor. Uh, well, my opinions on that are, are known. Um, okay. uh, you know, and I'm just speaking here for little old me. Um, to me, it's a, uh, you know, I guess I'm kind of, uh, I should be a bishop. Can I? Can you? Can you get me? Can you get me? Uh, can you get me hooked up? Because I, I you know, it's, it is this funny uh, subsidiarity and all things that uh, for me, I'm just giving you my, uh, you know, for Catholic social teaching. It was funny. It took me 35 years to figure out that, oh, I believe everything the nuns taught me. Yeah, that's about it. Uh, hmm. Went to Harvard, had no effect. Princeton, no effect. Penn, no effect. Uh, either I'm not paying attention or something's wrong here, uh, but to me it is sort of a completely pro-life perspective where it's Barney Frank, who I, I absolutely, I mean, I'm going to get a rough time, I'm sure, from the congressman in due course if I testify, um, which he's great at doing. Uh, he's, a great, he's a great examiner. But uh, Congressman Frank had this great quip. He said, uh, one time said, a, uh, a pro-life Republican is somebody who believes that life begins at conception and ends at birth. Um, 
and and uh oh and now comes the punchline now comes the punchline now the um the 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 reality uh of of uh, subsidiarity teaching and the reality of catholic social teaching generally is that it begins at conception but it doesn't even end unto death um it is for the infirm the aged and for those who are in need whether it's their fault or not it's a forgiving uh fraternal uh, uh approach to human suffering and need uh it makes you feel guilty all the time it's true um but it is pro life and pro family and pro poor it goes together in a very seamless way for a lot of uh, people and i know there are people you know we could you know lord knows there's incredible you know disagreement and debate on all those different issues in our society but i think the thing that has become interesting to me in the last several years is that the spirit that people have in hearing each other on these subjects and understanding you know what what does it mean to be compassionate why should i care about uh these poor kids trapped in these pockets of isolated deprivation and poverty and about as little you know as little as 6 or 7 years ago you heard people making the uh the, the global competition argument we can't afford to have any people who aren't college educated because we're in a global competition for our market share and that ain't true <laughs> yeah you can you can you can throw away all kinds of people and isolate people and and you can still have prosperity but as the president says prosperity without a moral purpose is is mere materialism and so um So I take the spirit of your question it's uh for me easy to answer but that's my answer I know other people have different answers and I think the spirit of this debate is is enlivened uh and leavened uh by people coming at this in fellowship and disagreeing about any aspect of it in a spirit of what we would call fraternal correction Thank you I think we just have time for one more Sean perhaps you could hand the microphone to the lady next to you I'm really excited to be here as you can see. Uh I don't have to speak hold it. Yeah, sorry. there we go. As I said, I enjoyed your talk and I'm really excited to be here as you can see. Uh hasn't been easy, but I think it's necessary that I'm here because I am the director of Interfaith and Community Partnerships for the New Jersey Department of Labor. And what I actually do is similar to what you do. As a matter of fact, we always thought you stole our idea that we President did, we did, Bush and we also stole your governor too. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's okay. Uh, <laughs> we didn't say that. <laughs> One of the things I wanted to point out is um, the charitable choice booklet. I have been promoting that booklet up to a point where I got a lot of flack um, about it from different religious groups. uh so temporarily it's kind of on hold i wanted to see where um the president was going with it and whether or not you endorsed it our uh, second of all i have been working with faith based organizations around the state visiting them and helping them to uh, strengthen their infrastructure and doing creative job placement job uh training and also on uh, job retention getting the faith based organizations to provide those services in the community i've been somewhat disappointed because i haven't seen the money and the churches have become pretty frustrated as well so i'm i'm looking forward to this so that but i'm being very optimistic 
telling them that it's coming, just get ready, helping them to uh, become a 501c3, pointing them in the right direction, helping them become 531 so that they can qualify for, to do job training. Right. So I'm looking forward to when this might happen. Well, I, I will tell you, um, it's amazing to me the fact that in 31 states, nothing has happened since 1996. Nothing. I mean, not a single grant, anything under charitable choice. And that has to do with a lot of different factors. We know that in surveys done, only about 7% of the urban community serving clergy and so on know about it. And when asked or when told about it and explained to them, 60% say they'd consider uh, partnering. And we don't know what fraction would actually do it and go through the whole process and go on that journey. But, but I want to tell you that <clears throat> my, you know, my greatest uh, uh, anticipation in this job, uh, I like legislation. You know, I guess I could do without some of the pyrotechnics and whatnot. But, uh, but I, I am an implementation hound. Uh, I'm a public administration hound. I like implementation process. I like the, the translating of the public law into action part of the process. And I am just itching, as soon as we get over this first chapter, to get with those existing laws. And the president has set aside and pledged money to help on a partnership basis, state capitals, governor's offices, to have, if they wish, their own offices of faith and voluntary action, or as Mayor Street calls his local office in Philadelphia, to have such offices so that human services bureaucracies at the state level all the way through that intergovernmental process are made more aware of the law, more, made more aware of the fact that they should do the same kind of implement, implementing legislation outreach to the communities that they do in all sorts of other areas of, of public law. And we really want to measure ourselves not only by the new legislation and what gets passed and how it gets extended, but by really translating the existing law into action and seeing whether we can't three or four or five years from now be able to look and see and say, well, here are all the groups that were doing all this work and had such, you know, trouble with 62-page RF, you know, what's a 501, how do you, you know, and have organizations and help intermediary organizations to provide the technical assistance necessary so that those organizations can, can access, if they so choose, or stay out if they so, so choose, can access support to administer the services that they're already administering. I can just quickly conclude by telling you that we have, there is a wonderful kind of how-to handbook coming out uh, from the Hudson Institute and the Center for Public Justice by Dr. Amy Sherman, which uh, I don't know if the, uh, we'll be allowed to do it or I'm, I'm still learning uh, that every time you breathe in the federal government, there's an ethics law implication of it. Uh, but I, I sure hope that we can help at least disseminate this because it's a, it's a kind of, a, it's meant for practitioners, tells them what charitable choice is, tells them what the processes are, and then we'd like to help them, if we can, you know, kind of tailor it and localize it so that at the back of each of those books, there's like a list of, okay, who are the people in your state, who are the technical assistance providers, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And I must also just conclude by saying that while the big organizations, the big religious organizations are sometimes bashed, you know, in this debate, you know, the, uh, you know, the Catholic charities and so forth, it's, it's, it's uh, really not entirely fair by any means. And they have been very eager, I will tell you, over the past uh, dozen weeks 
to basically say and get out ahead and say, we're going to figure out new and better ways to reach down and get reconnected and help these smaller organizations that, yeah, we maybe haven't paid enough attention to, uh, to, you know, get hooked in and, and, uh, and help uh, support them in their effort to continue to support the people uh, who have needs in their communities. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, this will conclude the uh, final James Madison program uh, lecture under the Olin Foundation, lectures in uh, the Moral Foundations of American Democracy for this year. We will be back next year, beginning in October, uh, with a lecture by the great uh, Jean Bethke Elstein of the University uh, of Chicago. Uh, thank you for coming out this evening, and please uh, join me in thanking Professor DiIulio.